Chapter 14, The Road Runs to Canada. Along the eastern shore of Maryland, in Dorchester County, in Carolyn County, the masters kept hearing whispers about the man named Moses, who was running off slaves. At first, they did not believe in his existence. The story about him were fantastic, unbelievable. Yet they watched for him. They offered rewards for his capture. They never saw him. Now and then, they heard whispered rumors to the effect that he was in the neighborhood. The woods were searched. The roads were watched. There was never anything to indicate his whereabouts. But a few days afterwards, a goodly number of slaves would be gone from the plantation. Neither the master nor the overseer had heard or seen anything unusual in the quarter. Sometimes one or the other would vaguely remember having heard a whippoorwill call somewhere in the woods, close by, late at night, though it was the wrong season for whippoorwills. Sometimes the masters thought that they had heard the cry of a hoot owl repeated and would remember having thought that the intervals between the low moaning cries were wrong, that it had been repeated four times in succession instead of three. There was never anything more than that to suggest that all was not well in the quarter. Yet when morning came, they invariably discovered that a group of the finest slaves had been taken to their heels. Unfortunately, the discovery was almost always made on a Sunday, thus a whole day was lost before the machinery of pursuit could be set in motion. The posters offering rewards for the fugitives could not be printed until Monday. The men who made a living hunting for runaway slaves were out of reach, off in the woods with their dogs and their guns in pursuit of four-footed game, or they were in camp meetings saying their prayers with their wives and families beside them. Harriet Tubman could have been could have told them that there was far more involved in the in the matter of running off slaves than signaling the would-be runaways by imitating the call of a whippoorwill or a hoot owl, far more involved than a matter of waiting for a clear night when the North Star was visible. In December 1851, when she started out with the band of fugitives that she planned to take to Canada, she had been in the vicinity of the plantation for days planning the trip, carefully selecting the slaves that she would take with her. She had announced her arrival in the quarter by singing the forbidden spiritual, Go down, Moses, way down to to Egypt land, singing it softly outside the door of the slave cabin late at night. The husky voice was beautiful, even when it was barely more than a murmur born in the wind. Once she had made her presence known, word of her coming spread from cabin to cabin. The slaves whispered to each other, ear to mouth, mouth to ear. Moses is here. Moses has come. Get ready. Moses is back again. The ones who had agreed to go north with her put ash cake and salt herring in their old, in their old bandana, hastily tied it to, into a bundle, and then waited patiently for the signal that meant it was time to start. There were 11 in this party, including one of her brothers and his wife. It was the largest group that she had ever conducted, but she was determined that more and more slaves should know what freedom was like. She had to take them all to Canada. The fugitive slave law was no longer a great many incomprehensible words written down on the country's law books. The new law had become a reality. It was Thomas Sims, a boy, picked up on the streets of Boston at night and shipped back to Georgia. It was Jerry and 
and Shadrach, arrested and jailed with no warning. She had never been in Canada. The route beyond Philadelphia was strange to her, but she could not let the runaways who accompanied her know this. As they walked along, she told them stories of her own first flight. She kept painting vivid word pictures of what it would be like to be free. But there was so many of them this time. She knew moments of doubt when she was half afraid and kept looking back over her shoulder, imagining that she had heard the sound of pursuit. They would certainly be pursued, 11 of them, $11,000 worth of flesh and bone and muscle that belonged to Maryland planters. If they were caught, the 11 runaways would be whipped and sold south, but she, she would probably be hanged. They tried to sleep during the day, but they never could wholly relax into sleep. She could tell by the positions they assumed, by their restless movements, and they walked at night. Their progress was slow. It took them three nights of walking to reach the first stop. She had told them about the place where they would stay, promising warmth and good food, holding these things out to them as an incentive to keep going. When she knocked on the door of the farmhouse, a place where she and her party, parties of runaways had always been welcome, always been given shelter and plenty to eat, there was no answer. She knocked again, softly. A voice from within said, Who is it? They were, there was fear in the voice. She knew instantly from the sound of the voice that there was something wrong. She said, A friend with friends on the password of the Underground Railroad. The door opened slowly. The man who stood in the doorway looked at her coldly, looked with unconcealed astonishment and fear at the 11 disheveled runaways who were standing near her. Then he shouted, Too many, too many. It's not safe. My place was searched last week. It's not safe. And slammed the door in her face. She turned to the, away from the house, frowning. She had promised her passengers food and rest and warmth. And instead of that, there would be hunger and cold and more walking over the frozen ground. Somehow she would have to instill courage into the 11 people. Most of them strangers would have, would have to feed them on hope and bright dreams of freedom instead of the fried pork and cornbread and milk she had promised them. They stumbled along behind her, half dead for sleep, and she urged them on though she was tired and as discouraged as they were. She had never been to Canada, but she kept painting wondrous word pictures of what it would be like. She managed to dispel their fear of pursuit so they would not be become hysterical, panic-stricken. Then she had to bring some of the fear back so that they would stay awake and keep walking. They drooped with sleep. Yet during the day when they lay down in a deep thicket, they would never really slept. They never really slept because of the twig snapped or the wind sighed in the branches of a pine tree. They jumped to their feet, afraid of their own shadow, shivering and shaking. It was very cold, but they dare not make fires because someone would see the smoke and wonder about it. She kept thinking, eleven of them, eleven thousand dollars worth of slaves, and she had to take them all the way to Canada. Sometimes she told them about Thomas Garrett in Wilmington. She said he was their friend, even though he did not know them. He was a friend to all fugitives. He called them God's poor. He was a Quaker, and his speech was a little different from that of other people. His clothing was different, too. 
He wore a wide-brim hat that the Quakers wear. She said that he had a thick white he had thick white hair, soft, almost like a baby's, and the kindest eyes she had ever seen. He was a big man and strong, but had never used his strength to harm anyone, always to help people. He would give all of them a new pair of shoes, everybody. He always did. Once they reached his house in Wilmington, they would be safe. He would see to it that they were. She described the house where he lived, told them about the store where he sold shoes. She said he kept a pail of milk and loaf of bread in his drawer of his desk so that he would have food ready at hand for any of God's poor who should suddenly appear before him, fainting with hunger. There was a hidden room in the store, a whole wall swung open, and behind it was a room where he could hide fugitives. On the wall there were shelves filled with small boxes, boxes of shoes, so they would never have to guess that the wall actually opened. While she talked, she kept watching them. They did not believe her. She could tell with their expression. They were thinking, new shoes, Thomas Garrett, Quaker, Wilmington. What foolishness was this? Who knew if she told the truth? Where was she taking them anyway? That night they reached the next stop, a farmhouse that belonged to a German. She made the runaways take shelter behind the tree at the edge of the field before she knocked on the door. She hesitated before she approached the door, thinking, suppose that he, too, should refuse shelter. Suppose. Then she thought, Lord, I'm going to hold steady on to you, and you've got to see me through, and knocked softly. She heard the familiar guttural voice say, Who's there? She answered quickly, A friend with friends. He opened the door and greeted her warmly. How many this time, he asked. Eleven, she said and waited, doubting, wandering. He said, good, bring them in. He and his wife fed them in the lamb-lit lamb kitchen, their faces glowing as they offered food and more food, urging them to eat, saying there was plenty more for everyone. Have more milk, have more bread, have more meat. They spent the night in the warm kitchen. They really slept all that night until dusk the next day. When they left, it was with reluctance. They had all been warm and safe and well-fed. It was hard to exchange the security offered by that clean, warm kitchen for the darkness and the cold of the December night. End of chapter 14.